0: Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Yeah,
1: you know, when you think about it in the church today, there are multifaceted ministries that we engage in on a routine basis. Ministries to folks that are sick and shut-ins. There's marriage ministries, youth ministry, recovery programs, healing services, just about everything you can imagine, even ministry for those that have physical disabilities. But if you think of that list, there's one category that is strangely, quite suspiciously, missing. And that is ministry to individuals and families dealing with mental or psychological disorders. They are often ignored, patronized, or simply pushed aside. Why is that? Is it because of some stigmatism? Is it based largely on ignorance? Maybe a combination of both. We learn more about this important topic from Matthew Stanford. Matthew is the CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, Texas. He serves as an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. His latest book is called Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness, newly released by InterVarsity Press. Matthew, thanks for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Why does it seem, as I suggest, of the laundry list of ministries that the church gleefully engages in, that this one is so suspiciously missing, that of ministering to those who might suffer from mental or psychological disorders or their families?
2: Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, it, it really is a combination of stigma and, and just kind of lack of education or a naivete. And really what's even stranger, I think, or maybe somewhat ironic, is that many of the ministries that you mentioned, when you think about prison ministries, addiction ministries, homeless ministries, human trafficking ministries, you think about these ministries, the populations that have extremely high rates of mental illness, yet very few churches incorporate mental health issues into those ministries. So I think there's really just a general stigma in the population we all just kind of think we know what it is to be mentally ill, it's just to be sad or it's just to be anxious, and people should just kind of get over it.
1: And I suppose, too, the notion of some of these crossover ministries, as you suggest, that might sometimes give us the impression that we're doing an adequate job as the Church ministering to people with unique needs in these arenas, when in fact that's just kind of window dressing. It really doesn't get down to the notion of upfront dealing with this and and maybe it's out of ignorance maybe there's a notion that the church hasn't been all that well equipped because it's a continually growing science and i think oftentimes um, in anything that we're continuing to learn on like for example on the topic of autism where we know it exists Do we really fully understand where it comes from or if there are certain families that are more predisposed towards potentially having a child that's autistic versus those that aren't? You know, science is continuing to to emerge and answering all of these questions, and it's almost as if the church has sort of decided to sit that one out.
2: No, I think you're right. You know, and we we are looking at, you know, the most complex of all the organs. You know, I mean, the liver is complicated, but it's nothing compared to the brain. So uh, we're looking at a very young discipline when it comes to things like psychiatry and psychology in the context of other medical uh, traditions. And so so I do think that, the, you know, the, the church is just kind of set aside. And some, you know, I, I use addiction ministries a lot of times as an example, because, you know, a lot of times addiction ministries will tell you that they have, you know, great success, and, uh, you know, they, they can be really, or well, they hit and miss, do you find one guy that Really, just what you do is very effective. And another guy it doesn't matter how hard he tries, and they'll often say, "Well, yeah, that's true." And I said, "Well, do you understand? You know that about half of all people with an addiction also have an underlying mental health problem, and they are primarily self-medicating to control this undiagnosed mental illness. And they don't—they don't know that. They—they they don't even know that that was like that. And so once they know that, and you can begin to incorporate, uh, you know, some psychological science." it doesn't change the spiritual aspects of the ministry or the gospel-centeredness or the Christ-centeredness of the ministry. It just adds in more tools that God's given us so that we might uh, alleviate people's suffering.
1: To be sure. And let's spend some time talking about ways in which we can do just that, to, to help provide a sense of comfort. And so many of these families, I think, uh, the, the characterization is they're just worn out. And perhaps no one understands what it's like to have a child that is dealing with autism or psychological or mental disorders until you have one. But if you talk to the parents, they will largely indicate that they just simply feel unsupported and completely worn out.
2: No, that's absolutely true. In fact, stress researchers, when they study the effects of stress on the brain, uh, the population that they use as their test subjects are the mothers of children with disabilities like autism and mental health problems, because the level of stress that they endure is extreme, uh, and it has significant physiological and and physical effects on their bodies. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, I I know of a family that went to a church, you know, here in the Houston area, and as they walked up with their son, who obviously has autism, uh, the first time they were visiting, they were met in the kind of lobby of the church as they went in, and and they were stopped by an usher who said, we don't have anything for you here. There's no reason for you to come to church here. That really happened, because they were trying to be honest that they had nothing uh, that could help them support this child, that they didn't even have the ability to take care of this child in their Sunday school. But imagine that in in the church. I mean, that just really doesn't seem what Jesus has set up for us. What we need to do is we need to say, what's coming in our back door, and how can we step out? Uh, and, and serve these individuals as they seek out the Lord. So, uh, so, you know, putting in buddy ministries to help with people with autism intellectual disability, getting our clergy trained on mental health problems, uh, training our Sunday school staff uh, on issues like that, it, making special arrangements for V D S and summer camps and things. I mean, these are children that, have, that are the same blessing as every other child that God's given to their parents. Uh, and they need to be spiritually uh, affirmed, spiritually ministered to, just like their parents, setting up support groups for their parents, giving a respite to the parents, being there uh, to help these parents care for these children.
1: Is it important, in your opinion, Matthew, for us to us to sort of reset the way we think of these families as well? In other words, too often it tends to be, oh, that's the Jones family. Their son has autism or, you know, the sense of sort of defining the family by the child's disorder. And I asked that question because many, many years ago, a very dear friend of mine revealed that his daughter um, had given birth to a Downs syndrome child. And he pondered the idea as to whether or not it might have been ultimately better for his daughter and for the sake of the family if that baby had been aborted. Ironically, fast forwarding 20-something years, that is now by far his favorite grandchild above all of the rest. And the amount of love that that child has brought to the family and the way that child has brought the entire family closer together is absolutely remarkable. I wonder if the stigmatism of just defining families by the negativity as opposed to who they actually are as people, what their potential is, who they might be in Christ, is maybe the better way of looking at this.
2: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think we do have a tendency to, when people have any type of mental health or or brain type of uh, disorder, that person becomes a disorder, as you described. And in a sense, for these families, and these children and adolescents, you know, we in a sense, write them off as a death sentence. You know, this child has Down syndrome, their life is over. Their child has Down syndrome, their family's life is over. But that's simply not true. Your example right there uh, demonstrates that that's not true. Now, if we then begin to treat that child as simply nothing more than a damaged brain uh, and uh, that he has no future, he has no purpose, he has no uh, ability to, to be successful, then absolutely it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But that's anti-biblical. I mean, God has a plan and a purpose for that child. God wasn't asleep when that child was born with Down syndrome, and God is going to be present to provide sustaining grace for that family, and the Church is an important and integral part of that. So I really think what we have to do is we have to, as people walk in the back of the Church, we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask the Holy Spirit, how can we step into their uh, situation, regardless of what, if they have a, a disabled child or not? and help them grow in their relationship to God and help them care for their family. What, what can we do? And each individual family is going to be different.
1: If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Matthew Stanford. He is the CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute at Houston, Texas, also adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. He is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and is the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness, newly released by Intervarsity <laughs> Press. We'll take this time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And welcome back to the program. A special visit today with Matthew Stanford. Matthew is an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. He is the CEO of Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, Texas, the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness. I know certainly, Matthew, for any family, the the discovery, the diagnosis of a son or a daughter that has anything from the spectrum of autism to psychological, mental disorders has got to be a punch in the gut. They must feel at a level perhaps, that they uh, they must have done something wrong, that somehow God is punishing them for all this. And maybe they see as evidence of that the fact that as they've gone to the church trying to find some answers, trying to find some help, they've largely been either told nothing to see here or sorry, we can't help you. And it's reminiscent of a story that you uh, reiterate that we all know from Scripture, from the book of John, in your new book, when you talk about the experience of the disciples walking with Christ and coming alongside a man who was blind from birth, and the disciples wonder out loud to Jesus, who had sinned here, this man or his parents?
2: You know, that is one of my very favorite stories. But I think it really speaks to the kind of stigma, stigmatization of disability. I mean, I literally have a friend, uh, a very intelligent man, multiple PhDs, uh, actually a very well-known individual who was told that his autistic son was the was by a church was told that he was the result of a generational curse. Uh, so, I mean, you know, when you hear things like that, I mean, in a sense, since the church represents God to many people, it, it's God that's turning his back on you to these families. And really what we have to do is we have to step in uh, to that space, much like Jesus did with that man born blind, and say, no, no, this isn't an issue of sin, condemnation, and judgment, this is an opportunity for the works of God to be manifest in an individual's life. And a family does have to grieve the loss of the, the dreams and expectations they had for a child that may struggle with these types of problems, but that doesn't mean that there are no dreams and expectations. It just means that the dreams and expectations that they had were not the accurate dreams and expectations. They need to form new dreams and new expectations for that child. And as the example that you gave earlier with a, a gentleman who has a Downs uh, Syndrome grandchild, uh, those can be incredible dreams and expectations. They may be better dreams and expectations than the family had to begin with, uh, but it's those unrealistic dreams and expectations that we held to begin with uh, that uh, that cause us uh, to need to grieve and then allow us to kind of remake a new normal as we move forward. And indeed, uh, these are opportunities for us to grow in faith, ourselves and for us to uh, express the love of Christ to these children.
1: There's a startling and stark reality that you disclose in the book that I think ought to cause all of us to give pause to this arena where the church has unfortunately come up so short from a ministry standpoint, and that is inside of grace for the children. You talk about the fact that surprisingly Uh, most parents upon the diagnosis of autism or um, some sort of psychological issue with a child are more likely to go to a clergy member even before they engage the services of a professional mental health provider or a doctor. Clergy first. And yet we say, nothing to see here, move along. We are really spurning an enormous opportunity, aren't we? Oh,
2: absolutely. It is... is divine opportunity of a lifetime. In fact, I often say that I think mental health is the mission field of the 21st century. People in, the, in psychological distress, people struggling with these problems, people who have children struggling with these problems, they are more likely to go to a clergy before they go to a physician or a mental health care provider, and that's, that's what was information found by the National Institutes of Health and a number of very large studies nationally. Uh, and that's just a known fact. If you go to a mental health care provider and you ask them, who do people go to first when they seek assistance, they will tell you clergy. When you ask clergy, they have no idea that that's true. Uh, In fact, I've had clergy tell me, well, I never have anybody with those problems come to me, and that's not because they, you know, it's because they don't walk in the door and say, oh, I think I woke up this morning and have bipolar disorder. I think my kid has, you know, depression. They walk in and they say, I'm not getting along with my child. I lost another job, you know, whatever, kind of what you think of as common problems, but the underlying, you know, root of it is a mental health issue. Uh, and really what we need to do is equip clergy and ministry staff to recognize these problems. We need to put uh, mental health services, supportive services in place within faith communities, uh, and we need to connect faith communities to professional health care, because, you know, churches are the front door of the mental health care system, and if we can open that door, we can absolutely transform society.
1: What are some of the first steps that churches, that begin to awaken to the reality of this area of ministry, the tremendous opportunity that it poses, in terms of learning first steps? This is such uncharted territory, and I think people tend to be a little bit off-put. They're nervous. They don't know how to behave. They don't know how to engage. Is there a resource, is there some place where you can send churches so they can learn how to go about developing better and more effective ministry to families and individuals um, that have a child that is struggling with mental illness or autism?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We actually developed a website uh, and have an entire training program uh, for churches Uh, from very low-level general training that helps people recognize uh, mental health problems, how to make referrals, how to relate to families and individuals, all the way up to a very intensive uh, mental health coach training. So if they go to mentalhealthgateway.org, that's mentalhealthgateway.org, they will find a whole set of resources there, lots of videos, lots of online training, curricula for support groups, uh, databases to help families get to uh, care. Uh, And so there's a lot of resources there for pastors, ministry staff, uh, and individuals themselves that are struggling with mental health problems or their family members.
1: That's a great resource. And of course, um, your book can be a wonderful starting point. And I would imagine to some degree, people that are sensitive to this topic, maybe because there's someone in their family, um, and so they're aware of some of the challenges that families face and being able to locate resources. Uh, maybe a good place to start is to get a copy of your book, Race for the Children, kind of learn more about this, and then maybe sort of take on the mantle to be the one that goes to pastor and says, Pastor, I think I'd like to help the church start a ministry to these families. What do you think?
2: Yeah, we've found that uh, exactly as you described, uh, in churches that have brought these things online and done this really well and successful, it usually starts with an individual who has lived experience. They either themselves that struggle with a mental health problem or they had a family member that they walked through with it, and now they want to pass that information and knowledge and ministry on to someone else. And so a passionate individual with some lived experience uh, can make a huge difference in a church. Uh, and it brings us the pastor uh, an opportunity to have a point person. Again, we don't want to—this well, is a congregational ministry. We don't want this just to be kind of a hired gun. You know, we're going to so say, oh, pastor, you need to start seeing people with mental health problems. We need to have a congregational uh, ministry that serves people that walk in the door that have mental health problems. So whether they sit down next to somebody in the back of the church in the pew or they go straight to the senior pastor's office, everybody's on the same page and everybody knows what's going on. And that passionate, lived-experienced individual uh, can be a, a great point person to begin and really uh formulate this ministry.
1: Well, and I appreciate you underscoring that, Matthew, because you're right. This shouldn't be seen as sort of the lone ranger who rides into town. They've got some awareness of this and want to take on a ministry um, ad hoc kind of, you know, set up a tent tomorrow and be in business, so to speak. Uh, This is something that can, and I think most naturally should, involve the entire church. And there might be some that put up some resistance and say, well, this could be disruptive. What what if somebody uh, acts out? What, What if in the middle of the sermon, an individual with autism wants to ask the pastor a question? And we feel as if we've sort of disrupted the routine, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe in some ways this can teach the church to to be more passionate and compassionate and and recognize the broad spectrum of people, all for whom Christ died, all for whom need to hear the good news of the gospel message, and all for whom need to be
2: loved. Absolutely. I mean, I I often say, you know, people are important to God, not ceremonies. And, you know, if somebody disrupts your ceremony because they make noise or uh, whatever— uh, and again, we're not talking about someone being aggressive or, or anything like that. We're just talking about someone who maybe isn't following along with this very rigid tradition that we have Sunday mornings. Uh, that, that's a wonderful opportunity. That's a wonderful time. I mean, my, the church that I actually attend uh, here in the Houston area, I mean, one of the, in my opinion, one of the best ministries they have is there's a, there is a, um, uh, a place called Hope Village that's near us that uh, men and women that have intellectual disabilities, they live there. Uh, when they're not able to be cared for by their families, and so all of them are adults, and and they come to church at our church, a, a whole busload of them comes every uh, Sunday morning, uh, and they all sit, uh, you know, in the service along these two rows, and and they have varying levels of intellectual functioning, uh, and sometimes they do yell out, and uh, you know, and and it's you know it's a, you know, that's what it is to be human. we we're, we're all on a continuum. It's not an us and them kind of thing. Uh, And, you know, I'm called to care for those individuals, and those individuals are called uh, to offer assistance and care to me, and uh, that's what the church is. Uh, It's not a ceremony on Sunday morning, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we get caught up in that kind of rigid, uh, you know, kind of structure that we have, and we kind of forget the people. Point
1: well taken. The book again is called Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness. Newly released by Interversity Press. You'll find it at Christian bookstores across the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. More information about Matthew's ministry online at HopeAndHealingCenter.org. That's HopeAndHealingCenter.org. Matthew, we appreciate you taking some time today to sort of pull back the proverbial curtain and shed some light on this very important ministry opportunity.
2: I appreciate you having me.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. A lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're, if not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end? Warren Smith joins us now, vice president of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program.
0: Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so
1: much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged. And just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event, uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more. And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your, your your hope meter is, is wearing out in all of this, but that you're, you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And, and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today?
0: Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines. That's exactly right to see um, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to, um, to say uh, that we live in serious times. But uh, we, uh, as Christians, are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And, of course, Christians, of all people, should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus, or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus per se, but the Bible says are the good, the three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because... As we have been looking out at the world and all these negative uh, stories, we've also been, been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people it, it just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, it's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed. We've seen lives rebuilt. We've seen entire cities uh, transformed. It's it's in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. um, uh, Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile in restoring all things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope. In the midst of these chaotic
1: times, so at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective? And I, and I asked that question because, again, you know, we were kids; uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic R's: reading, writing, and arithmetic. Something always told me that one of those words, at least, was misspelled. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But from from a from a Christian perspective, there's another set of three R's that I think we can't forget. That, in fact, is foundational to our very faith which is what leads me to this question about perspective, and that is another set of three R's, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that that, uh, that Christ played in world history.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's, because there are, in fact, Many more than those three R's of scripture. We, in Scripture. We begin near the beginning of the book. We talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and uh, engage in those activities that um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos. Whereas uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned—R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption—we uh, we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this this activity of of restoring all things to Himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's it's one thing. Um, to say that Jesus saves, and Jesus uh, transforms, and Jesus redeems. But if our lives don't show that, Craig, it's, that argument is not convincing. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives, and I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel.
1: Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And, and I ask that question because, you know, let, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if, if you were doing well, you married the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect job, you had the perfect amount of money in the bank, you have perfect health, uh, all of it a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay, but here, in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos, that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening. And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan, because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't His grace shine the brightest?
0: Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, and in, in, in throughout history, I think not only in our individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian church thriving Whenever the world around it was in chaos, we tell stories, for example, uh, from the second and third century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases were just just ravaging cities and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease, but it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process. But it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, even recently, in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that, were, that um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember.
1: Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? Yep. I mean, yeah, is I is the is the message of heaven all that powerful? A one uh, absence the existence of hell. I, I would I would suggest probably not.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce Bruce once said that uh, the, an, an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation, and uh, you know it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a savior, and it's it's. Also, also easy for us Christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor. But you know, our neighbor Jesus died for our neighbors, even the one the neighbor that we don't like. You know, just as much as Jesus died for us. So I think that um, you know what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview, which is that we do live in a fallen world, but that God loves us so much that He sent His Son and when we accept him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with him in this process that uh, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory. You
1: no, know, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not a, an example of um, spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of... Reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me. And so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here. Um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that, as opposed to saying, "Look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've got some work to do." And uh, in the midst of this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, vice president of World's News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World, through everyday people, and maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Moran, is everyday people. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of Racial unrest, economic imbalance, social strife, all of this taking place it's It's hard obviously uh, and frustrating for a lot of people, and then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if well, you know they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and and affecting god's plan for red, uh, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. but maybe they feel like, well, as overwhelming as all this is though, isn't my work largely going to be for naught and 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 ultimately insignificant?
0: Well, you know, it's a really great question, and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stone Street, uh, my co-author, uh, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say – Gee, I'm just little old Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or or um, Eric Mcaxes even. Uh, so, what can I do? And what we discovered in in our searching around for stories and the stories that we reported in the book uh, were stories of of individuals not doing great things but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak, back a number of years ago but what we what has turned the tide if you today abortions the number of abortions are going down the younger generation is more pro life than its parents that's what public opinion surveys tell us. How did that happen? And and a part of the reason uh, it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country. In thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities. Uh, This movement has sprung up spontaneously. It wasn't uh, a top-down movement. There wasn't somebody in Washington, D.C. or New York City or wherever saying "We, we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet, when we look, you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we, what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that, that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is yes they they are engaged in pro-life activism they are maybe engaged even in protests from time to time but that's not all they do they are also really caring uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across America it's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country and I think that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty. It could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do.
1: Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China. And and it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen, an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up. And there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this, uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it it is enormous, it is breathtaking, it is an incredible uh, work of of feat to be sure. But you know what it's made up of? Individual small bricks. Yep. Any one of those bricks, by and of themselves, would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together... Creates this incredible edifice that has such an Im- impact that it can be seen from space, and it, and it 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 dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here. That you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest, or uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in in economics, or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own, but together. Doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can it?
0: Well, that's exactly right. And you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives to kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story when he was a high, in high school. Uh, he uh, had it, it really because he'd been cutting up in school. His teacher made him visit an older woman, a, what we used to call a shut-in, uh, to, and uh, as punishment for cutting up in class. But so John visited this woman who, at that time, was in uh, probably seemed ancient to John was in her seventies or even early eighties, and they just spent thirty minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and and John said, "Do you remember who I am?" And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just, the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to to pray for him every day. John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea. But a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later. But he always remembers the, the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker has been, having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which, of course, changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know how God is going to use our availability. Uh, it's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability. Our job, our goal, our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the Holy Spirit work from there. And I I think that uh, great things will happen in the Absolutely.
1: Of and of course, through that act of obedience, uh, Warren, can come uh, God executing on his plan for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Warren Smith, again, the book is called... Restoring All Things, God's audacious plan to change the world through everyday people, newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. And our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.